Hey everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, in the wake of what has been, I think it is fair to say, one of our toughest weeks since Trump took office, a very high bar indeed, we are joined again by Laura Vandernut Lipsky. She is the creator of The Trauma Stewardship and author of the book, The Age of Overwhelm. And she offers insight into how we can navigate these very difficult times. That is all ahead, so stay with us. I think it goes without saying that a lot of the political news over the last few weeks has been hard to deal with and process emotionally, and so it is excellent timing then that we are joined by our friend Laura Vandernut Lipsky. She is founder of the Trauma Stewardship Institute, and her most recent book is The Age of Overwhelm, Strategies for the Long Haul. And Laura is going to be leading a training event called Navigating Overwhelm in 2020 at Town Hall in Seattle on February 25th, and we are so glad glad that she could join us to tell us all about it. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. It's really nice to talk with you again. Yeah, likewise. And you know what? Um, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. When I was preparing this, I was kind of thinking about phrasing things in terms of like a hypothetical and saying, you know, people are feeling a lot of rage, despair, anxiety, and so forth. But I'm just going to say that I'm feeling all of that stuff um, a lot. I just want to yell most of the time. Um, Yeah. Remind us of what the signs of overwhelm are. Well, so there's, there's, there's a number of them and, you know, there's, there's kind of a, there's a continuum of, overwhelmed, you know, maxed out, overwhelmed, heading into what would some folks would call, you know, vicarious trauma, cumulative toll, vicarious PTSD. Um, Some of what we pay attention to is really very, like, extreme feelings. I mean, we really appreciate folks' ability to feel and to emote. Also, some of what you want to be able to look at is, you know, if one thing goes sideways in your day and you're just completely full of rage, right? Or you're misdirecting, you know, some of your impatience or your anger. You mean uh, taking it one, out on other people, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and that doesn't, I mean, that can be people close to you. And it can also just be, you know, sometimes you just go through your day and, you just like that we as humans, you know, not assuming the best about each other necessarily, we're not treating each other meticulously, you know, like there's just kind of a lack of care. So it can be with folks close to you, but it can also just be out and about in your life. Right. And I think that that erodes all of our spirits really. Uh, We pay very close attention to cynicism, of course, and whether that's that raw cynicism, like just a cloud above your head all the time, or whether it's cynical humor, which I think, a lot of us use in the organizing community and a lot of us use as activists and a lot of us use in many of our fields, which is our lives. And cynical humor can be a little bit confusing because it's like that you're it's it's kind of funny, but then you're kind of like, oh, boy. Yeah. I you mean, know? I always wonder about where to net out on that. I mean, I, I think we're referring to gallows humor um, and, you know, dark times often become so overwhelming that you sort of resort to humor as a way to deal with it. I mean, is that do you find that to be a healthy outlet or not healthy outlet? What I um, look for is our ability to be able to connect that cynical humor is not pure humor. It certainly can be effective and it can be an outlet. But what I want folks to be able to connect is that underneath cynical humor is generally this undercurrent of anger and rage. So as long as folks are able to say, 
I am so angry. I am so full of rage. My whole team is so full of rage. My whole community is so angry. We laugh a lot. We use a lot of cynical humor. Then I'm less worried. But I do worry when I'm with folks or I'm working with folks and people are like, oh, we're not angry. We're just funny people. You know, like, <laughs> so if you're engaging cynical humor, there's there's something else going on there. Um, and, and so it's having the awareness right. of the complexity of it. Yeah, so awareness is key. I, you yeah. know, I'm also wondering if there's a physical component. Like, what are some of the physical aspects that we should watch out for yeah, uh, exactly. when we're in a state of overwhelm? Right, exactly. So, I, yeah, I was going to say, so, I mean, I think fatigue is something, I, there, there's a level of tired, like, just, I, and I was, I was listening to some of the interviews coming out of the caucuses in Iowa, and there was a woman interviewed, I think by Michael Barbaro, and she, she's like, I, I'm, I'm going home. And he's like, well, can I ask you a couple more questions? And, and she just, she just was like, I'm tired. You right. know, I mean, I think she was 80 something. She's like, I'm just, and you could just hear in her voice. Now she's in her eighties, right? Uh, there's folks in their eighties who are tired. There's folks in their twenties who are that tired too. Right. But it, it's like a, like, I just felt like in her voice, there was just this profound exhaustion. Right. And that is something that we are seeing so much. And, and I think what's helpful for folks to understand about that is there's a number of reasons we can be that fatigued. I think many of us are in this ongoing state of grieving and mourning what is happening locally, nationally, internationally. Mm. And grief is so exhausting. Mourning is so it's so depleting. And so I think I, I like people to be able to make those connections too. that. This isn't just like, Oh, it's, you know, another cloudy day. <laughs> like it's another rainy day. I'm just tired because it's February. I hope people can understand that if you're in this kind of ongoing state of grieving and mourning and trying to unattach while still stay engaged, you know, like un- unattached in a rigid way, but still stay engaged, it can be really, really just so exhausting to grieve as, as anyone knows who's lost someone close to them or an animal close to them. Like if you can kind of harken back to when you've actually grieved a loss, a specific loss, and then you kind of generalize that to what it's like just day after day to see what so many of us feel like, you know, so, so much of the loss is happening in society. And then of course, the empathy, the compassion we have, where uh, how so many people are suffering because of the current administration. Yeah, and you know, I just as we're talking here, I'm remembering that the first time we spoke was in the aftermath of the Kavanaugh hearings, right? Which were just so deeply traumatizing for so many people. And right. here we are, you know, a year and a half plus later in the wake of the impeachment hearings, which of course have also been incredibly traumatizing. And I'll just ask you, and you're kind of hinting around the edges of this, but what what is the impact of prolonged exposure to trauma like this? And so it's it's a great question. It's different for different people because some, so, you, you know, trauma it's it's personal and it's subjective. So for some folks, this is a drag and this is unpleasant, but this is definitely not traumatizing. You well, know, let's they, talk about through... then the people who are in the activist world, the people who kind of yeah. intentionally put themselves on the front right. line and who are exposing themselves to this thing every single day or most right. days. Right. So even in the activism community, this, this is going to sit on everybody differently, right? Because part of how we interact with suffering and hardships and crises 
is is if you believe in intergenerational trauma, if you believe in intergenerational oppression, even if you believe in epigenetics, right? There's all these things, and then there's just this lifetime what we bring to things. That how- I'm actually just going to stop and just very briefly ask you to define those terms: intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. Okay, so intergenerational trauma is where there's there's what happens to us in this lifetime. Right. Okay. So just kind of you're going through your life There's what happens right here in this lifetime. Now, there are some folks who believe that how we go through this lifetime is affected by what our ancestors have been through. Right. Okay. So whether you because you believe it gets passed down. Right. Or because how you were raised and how your life in this lifetime has been affected by what your parents went through, your aunts and uncles went through, your grandparents went through, your ancestors went through. So we call that, we connect that both to intergenerational transmission of oppression and of trauma, right? And of course, oppression is traumatizing too, right? And certain studies have shown that there is a genetic component to this, that there's a carryover, right? Well, so that that gets more into epigenetics. And epigenetics is still a field that, you know, there's Many, many different opinions about epigenetics. Epigenetics, that's what you're talking about, where there's the genetic carryover. And they've studied folks after a famine, and they've studied folks after Holocaust, and they've studied folks after slavery. And they'll see the generational, not not just one generation, not two generations, but sometimes, you know, three generations or more, that genetic component. Okay. Okay. So whether or not you believe in those things, or if you just believe you know, just this lifetime, you know, your 18 years or your 20 years or your 22 years or your 30 years in this life, however it's unfolding, still what's happening right now, it's going to sit on everybody differently. And the reason I think that's important to remember is because one of the things that matters as we go through hard times is our ability to have humility and our ability to have grace with each other so that we're not projecting and we're not supposing that that I'm not going to assume you're feeling the same way that I'm feeling or that you're supposed to react the same way that I'm supposed to react. Right. Okay. So then back to your question of how does this affect us? Well, it's going to, and and ultimately how, you know, how prolonged exposure with the individual, um, how that affects us say over a period of say 2016 to, to present of just being exposed to this kind of thing on a regular basis, how that can affect people. Right. Okay. So, I mean, so one thing we can see is kind of an exhaustion, but like a, a, a exhaustion in your cells, not like caffeine doesn't help it. Working out doesn't help it necessarily that much, you know, like, like a really soulful exhaustion. Cynicism, we see a lack of hopefulness. We see where you kind of, you just, you're just like, what is the point? What are we, why am I getting out of bed? Like, like, what does any of this matter? Right. Another piece that we see that gets challenging, which I just referenced a second ago, where we lose our ability to assume well about each other. Right. So where we can kind of get in this collapsed analysis of how we think, see things, we our ability to have grace with each other erodes, our ability to have our own humility erodes. So you can kind of see more dogma come in, more opinion. Not not. I mean, we like people to have opinions and you know a sharp analysis of things, but it's where the judgment can come in, right? And so. Sometimes during times like this, you see people come together in solidarity and sometimes you see people, sometimes we get more judgmental, you know, Mm. we get more dogmatic, we might get more self-righteous. Right. Um, I think the other thing that can be hard is just maintaining other pieces of your life. Right. That when you feel that so much is at stake and there's so much to do and, you know, 
so many of us came into 2020, which is like the clock ticking, clock ticking, clock ticking. So then is it hard to enjoy your kid's basketball game? You know what I mean? Like, do you, do you go spend time with friends anymore at dinner? Like, well, yeah, you're having you go- trouble being present in those kinds exactly. of moments, right? Exactly. Exactly. And I do think this year with 2020, I, I just, I know there's so many of us who just are walking around with a low to medium to high grade, just nauseated feeling all the time. You know, just like, <laughs> I have no I, idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, and you, and you don't want a future trip, you know, and you don't want to be like, oh, God, let us just get to November all of a sudden, uh, you know. Uh, but it's like exactly what you're saying. It is can be very, very hard to be present. I mean, that's why when we talk about what to do about it, trying to have some ability to have any, whatever language you apply to it, but some kind of mindfulness, some kind of practice where you're able to bring yourself to this moment and you're able to find something that's going well and anything that you can be grateful for. Because, you know, as you like, life is very impermanent. And the idea of just kind of wishing away time till November or trying to get there already, or just like, I can't stand this anticipation, you know, to say nothing of the work that we have to do ahead of us. Or even um, the pain of experiencing the day-to-day exposure to all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, just listening to the scene of the union and the, <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it, it just, it feels completely unbearable. Yeah. Right. But again, that's not, you know, and, and people, people have big lives where they've been through any number of things, you know, that the idea of like wishing away time, there's, there's just something very tragic about that. Right. Where it just feels unbearable to be in this moment. And then you're wanting to simultaneously fast forward. But then I don't think any of us are getting our hopes up for how well that's going to go either in November. Right. So there's kind of an anticipation and a bracing. You know what I mean? Right. And so then that actually leads me into my first listener question, which comes from Lisa Steele. And she would like to know what you do for self-care. And so I'm wondering if you are able to, I mean, do you do you meditate? Do you do breathing exercises? What sorts of things do you do to keep yourself present and not in that state of, as you say, anticipation? Right. Well, because I come to this work from, you know, having had my own near psychotic break and uh, losing my mind back in the day. And because coming back from that is uh, arduous and, uh, you know, a life, a lifetime of coming back from that. I mean, there's there's not much I don't do in terms of like I I need to pull in everything possible. So a lot of what I rely on is definitely some kind of a daily metabolizing of just trying to clear out my nervous system from the previous 24 hours. So that's where when you and I talked before, you know, you get your heart rate up, break a sweat, unless you're medically advised against it, right? Right. You get your heart rate up, break a sweat six days a week, you know, even if it's for a short time, but you, you, you're doing, you're engaging in some kind of breath work, you know, you're lifting weights, you're spinning, you're boxing, you're running, you're doing stairs, you're doing pull out, you're doing something. And that can be anything from dancing to singing to playing the saxophone, but something with an intention every day of may anything that's, you know, accumulated in my nervous system be released. So I have another 24 hours of trying to show up and bring my highest self to this. So that is very important to me. I do some meditation. I do mindfulness, but I'm not, I'm not sitting, you know, on a cushion for 90 minutes every day. So that that's not the reality of my life right now. So I try to do the really kind of desperate times, desperate measures, meditation, and just mindfulness where you bring yourself back, you know, somatic training, like bring yourself back to the present moment where when I start future tripping or I start getting into that kind of OCD perseverating about the future loop, just try to, you know, as as a colleague of mine said, look outside and just watch the way that light filters through a tree and try to, you know, bring yourself back and re-regulate your nervous system. 
Yeah. Right. Um, I am I am very strict with myself on limiting myself to exposure of media and social media. And I will expose myself to things I need to know about. But I'm not do I, I'm not exposing myself to any of the vitriol or the toxicity. If, if I can't do something about it. Right. Or if there's not a clear intention of why I'm knowing about it, I just can't, I, 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 I mean, I'm going to ask you to underline that, actually, because I think that's a very important distinction, right? Because I think a lot of us do feel that as part of their work as activists, that they need to be informed as to what's going on. Um, and I will just use myself as an example. You know, I spend about I spend 30 hours a week doing this show and I am spending a lot of time on places like Twitter and Facebook. And I'm telling myself as I'm doing that, like I'm doing this for research. But really, I think that's bullshit. I think what I'm ultimately doing is uh, sort of allowing myself to get involved in almost this outrage cycle. And that's at the point, I think you're saying, where it stops becoming what you need and starts becoming a little unhealthy or sort of feeding the beast. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and it can become, I mean, it, it is potentially so toxic. I mean, if you just think, what do you need to do in your nervous system? To be able to expose yourself to some of the vitriol and some of the hatred and some of the disinformation just in your nervous system. It feels what terrible. What needs to happen? Yeah. Right. And, and, and what do you need to do to flush that out? And it's not – I mean, you're. it's not like you're living on – an ashram where you have like no other responsibilities. Like you've got all these other responsibilities. So the practices you would need to have in place to regularly detox that and move it through your nervous system. So it's not accumulating in you. So then over time, it's just like where, like how much of that is being carried in your spleen? How much of that is like sitting in your liver? How much of that is taking root in your kidneys? You know, like like it just, it completely. (laughs) And so this is where I think, I, I think, I mean, the cost benefit and I, I mean, the good news is, and I understand th- there are certainly people in our society who are needing to track what is happening be- so closely because their lives depend on their ability to stay in the country depends on it. I understand that. And with those folks, we try to, you know, do some tag teaming and work on a relay system. But if you are somebody who's needing to know some because of your work or for whatever reason, then I really urge you to be as strategic as you possibly can and as discerning as you can and very, very strict with yourself about not exposing yourself to anything that is not absolutely critical to the task at hand. And what some people bump up against is they feel like to be a loyal activist, Mm. do you know what I mean? Like to be fully down with the cause, they have to be engaged in this. And I, it's, it's, it's an exposure issue. Like when you are exposed to that much toxicity, then you have to think, okay, well then what's the rest of your day like to be able to move that through your nervous system? Because, because, you know, in every tradition talks about, you do not want anything stagnating within you. So you don't want this rage stagnating in your brain. You don't want the hopelessness stagnating in your, you know, you can feel it. Like you can just, even if you don't believe in spirit or soul or anything, you can just in your body, folks are getting less and less well. I mean, it's really impacting us. Well, yeah, and I I have a feeling, and we'll get to this in a second, that that's um, what you're going to be addressing at uh, your training in Seattle uh, this month. 
And, you know, I just want to back up on something that you said uh, a second ago in passing. You talked about uh, the rules are different when people's lives depend on uh, knowing certain information. And that leads into another question, which is actually by my mom, Janice Cox. Uh, And she asks, uh, for those of us who help the immigrant community, how can we help people who live in fear of ICE, deportation, having a family member held in detention? How can we help them cope? What, What would you say to that? First of all, your mom. Oh, oh, I want to eat your mom. <laughs> Second well, of all, yeah, you can. She's awesome. <laughs> okay. Second of all, I mean, right. So th- those those are exactly some of the communities who who we talk about, who we who we know are are having to track closely. Um, I mean, I think that for those communities, I think there, there's the tactical things that need to happen in terms of like, are they hooked up with every resource possible? You know, has every, is everyone working with them who we could possibly have working with them? Every pro bono, you know, so there's a tactical piece of like, okay, are they in the best hands possible while they're waiting for their proceeding or while they're, um, you know, in whatever process they might be in. So, so there's that piece of it. And then in terms of the crushing emotional and psychological and cognitive toll of just what it is like every day to live in terror, I think that also is where if if in any way possible, we can create breaks for them that it's, you know, whether it's breaks through laughter, whether it's breaks through having some kind of a mindfulness practice. Okay. Okay. Like, well, in this moment, right. Like in, we don't know what's going to happen in five minutes, but in this moment, let's just bring ourselves back here. You're trying to kind of constantly re-regulate. So your nervous system doesn't get into this fight, flight, freeze response state to such an extreme. Right. I do think a gratitude practice like any and and if that language bugs you and call it whatever you want, but continuing to come back to like right now, what's going well. Right. And, and some of those practices, you know, if you get into the habit, if you can, of like the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning is, you know, write down three things that are going well but before you go to bed, write down three things are going well. But even throughout your day that you have alarms on your phone or something to remind you, okay, in this moment, my child is still at school and she got to go on her field trip and that's going well. Right. And, and I think that that the dedication one has to have to that practice, it is, it's very, very hard, particularly when you live in a state of terror where the, uh, you know, the stakes are just so incredibly high. Um, but I do think much can come from that practice and we, and, you know, and we have a lot of research to support that. I, and I think the other piece of it is giving people an outlet for giving people space to feel deeply that people will have the space to be able to not hold it all together you know, not suck it up, not do any of that. Because there's to, an impact to that as well. If you're trying to stuff the organic feelings oh, yeah. down, right? Oh yeah. No, we're not wanting to do that. No, no, no. Yeah. So people are get you know, just like, remember, like take an extra minute in the shower and cry if you want to, you know, if you're feeling mad, like here's a membership at a gym, you can go and box for 30 minutes, like giving people an opportunity to feel very, very, very deeply to let those waves wash over them when they come and to feel deeply and to be able to express that and not be isolated in that. And then I think we, we try to then separate out, feel deeply and then make sure whatever you're doing behavior and conduct wise is not causing any harm. 
right? So that yeah, then that's sure. where, so with the not causing any harm, that we just make sure that you're feeling deeply and that, you know, you're not sucking it up. And then in terms of the not causing any harm, that we help you get out of this perseverating loop about what if, what if, what if, what if. So we, you can do that, you know, through some of the practices we've talked about. So there's there's a number of different approaches to that. And it's I think it's tending to both. We're doing everything we can just, just, you know, tactically, logistically for this. And then, okay, let's really tend to what's going on inside of you and inside your nervous system. Because sometimes what happens is folks hold it together. I mean, like hold it together for years, you know what I'm saying? And then, and what many people said to me is I can, I can point exactly to the day that this cancer started growing in my body. Mm. Right. So, so you'll, you'll hear people talk about holding it together, holding it together, holding it together. And then, some kind of uh, collapse happens later. And that's that's part of what we're wanting to avoid. To say nothing of we just don't, folks who are in this state of, I don't know what's going to happen with ICE, I don't know what's going to happen with deportation, I don't know what's going to happen in the court hearing. That is just, it is pure hell to live that way. So we want every single day for there to be able to be, again, you're tending to what you need to tend to, but to find some some joy, some relief, some comfort somehow. And much of how we do that is, is also making sure that folks aren't isolated. Well, so let's then shift over and talk about your training event. So you say that this is a tactically focused training on how to sustain ourselves in overwhelming times. What will people learn at this training? Well, what we're hoping to do, uh, generally when I've done these, we spend some of the time, you know, setting some context for this conversation of what it, what it means to be traumatized, what it means to navigate vicarious trauma, what it means to be overwhelmed. And then we talk about how you know when that's happening. And then we talk about strategies. Because of the current level of desperation that I think so many of us are feeling, you know, for any number of things, I mean, there's what's unfolding politically. And then also, let's remember, people have full lives with loved ones dying and, you know, a neighbor taking their own life and their animal being sick and their kids navigating high school. Right. So on all these different layers. But I just feel like the temperature is just dialing up every single day. Um, I, and because of that desperation, this, this, we're going to get in and kind of just head straight into the strategies. So we're going to spend really a full day going through strategy after strategy after strategy. And from that, the hope is that folks will leave with a few concrete things that resonate for them because Right. Everybody, this means something different to everybody. For some people, they'll get a lot out of the conversation about decision fatigue, for example, and others will be reminded that how important it is to take yourself outside and be outside. And for others, they're going to maybe they'll take something away about really limiting media and social media. Um, So so one of the things that we've just talked about. Yes. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to cover, you know, everything from decision fatigue to emotional contagion to. Oh, uh, I have to ask you to define that. What's emotional contagion? So emotional contagion, that's where that's where we're you've heard me talk about doing no harm. And one of one of the places when we're talking about doing no harm is having some self-awareness of how we're conducting ourselves. So I work in a lot of organizations, a lot of systems, a lot of institutions, and you probably have this experience with places you work where, you know, somebody will come into the room and the the entire mood changes, right? Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes that can change for like that person comes in and, oh, just 
light floods in and it's amazing. <laughs> and sometimes somebody will come into the room and it, you can just, it is a palpable sense of like just this. They'll bring the whole fog. room down. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now I don't want to say, I don't believe that we make people feel a certain way. So I don't want to get into that thing. Like you made me feel a certain way. Right. I think there's cause and effect, but we do impact we, each other. Right. There is impact. There's cause and effect in terms of how we conduct ourselves. Right. And so with emotional contagion, part of what we're looking at is while we are going through these next many months, how can we feel what we're feeling and be responsible and accountable so that our conduct remains integrity filled. That can be everything from not rolling your eyes in a staff meeting. That can be not gossiping. That can be not talking trash about people, right? Like, they, well, yeah, and there's just, also, yeah. I, I want to almost say a pay it forward aspect to this in a negative way, right? So if you um, cut somebody off in traffic or you holler at somebody in line at the post office or whatever, that might carry over to that person's next interaction where they, you know, take it out on the next person and so on and so forth, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's remember, okay, so when I talk about doing no harm, a lot of colleagues, activists, folks doing social justice work, folks doing environmental justice work, a lot of people will say, no, 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 I'm really like, I think I'm still bringing my my best self to the work I'm doing. And what we see in every field is that the first place harm is going to happen is in our own health. And the second place harm is going to happen is in our personal relationships. So I do believe that most people are like, oh, no, no, no. Like the folks I'm serving, I'm, I'm still holding it together there. I believe that for a lot of people. And then what I want to be able to look at is how how is your health? Right. And, and not we're usually not a good judge of our own health. So what, what would a naturopath or an acupuncturist or an Eastern medicine doc say about your health? And then how are your personal relationships? What would your loved ones tell me? Right. Right. And I might have told you the story. Uh, stop me if I did. But I might have told you the story when I was working in a small community in Vermont that was just being just destroyed by this opioid epidemic. And a woman there who had been working in it for so long was talking about how much was stagnating in her and just the kind of the hemorrhaging out that can happen ultimately. And she said, it's gotten to the point where not even my dog wants anything to do with me. Oh my God. Right? Wow. So, right, so that experience of just like your dog coming to the door and seeing you, you know, and just being like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Turn you know around. that you know, dogs are so like, you know, universally accepting and non-judgmental so you know if you're pissing your dog off um it's probably time to to reassess uh, some yeah. of the things that you're doing in your life right, right um i will just ask you very briefly and you mentioned this on the literature for the event uh some of the people that you are hoping will attend and obviously this is for activists but who else is this seminar aimed at oh yes we are pitching a very very wide tent this is this is literally for anybody who is going through their days feeling like, um, life's kind of a lot right now. I mean, this is, this is for <laughs> that adolescents. That is a wide tent, my friend. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is for <laughs> adolescents who are like, I'm done. Like I'm done with this overachieving in high school. I'm done with this just nonsense of just like the college, everything I'm done with. 
I mean, just now, I mean, what adolescents and young adults are navigating right now is ineffable. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? It's for folks in any, any kind of a field where they might be exposed to what's happening with a climate crisis, what's happening around oppression, what's happening, you know, being a school teacher, what's happening, being a nurse. And then it's, it's for all the caretakers out there. I mean, all the folks who are caretaking in the home and who might be feeling isolated and then certainly for anybody who's involved in, you know, what's going on politically, locally, nationally, internationally, who are just who are at a complete loss of how, what, what do we do? Like, how, how do we even how can we make sure we are not contributing to harm and how can we contribute skillfully in some way that can mitigate harm and that can actually help transform things? Well, you're just speaking to that audience right now. Uh, tell people where they can learn more about this. So the web, our website's traumastewardship.com and they can go there and they can find information there and they can also just email us from there. Laura, you are so awesome. I really appreciate our talks. I hope that we will get a chance to uh, do this again. I will encourage people not only to check out both of your books. Uh, the latest is The Age of Overwhelm. The first is Trauma Stewardship. Uh, and make it out to Town Hall on February 25th if you are able. Laura Vandernut Lipsky, as always, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It's such a joy to talk with you. Thank you. And for everything you're doing. Thank you. I'm just so, so grateful. And I will mention that because we recorded last week that Laura's seminar in Seattle is currently sold out, but that there is a waiting list if you'd like to get on that. I have a link for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to Laura Vandernut Lipsky. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <music>